Thank you so much, Carlene. Um, and it is, it is amazing to be here again, kind of 20 years later, and I've been thinking a lot about that first residency, and it, it, it was such a profound experience, and, and it really did change my life. I mean, I think it was sort of like I arrived, it was January, it was snowing, it kept snowing, <laughs> I was cocooned, and at a certain point I was like, oh, right, there's my brain. <laughs> You know, it was like finally I was having sustained thoughts. Um, so I'm very, very grateful to be here. Um, so I am going to read from a, a kind of abridged version of a story that is part of a larger collaboration that I have been working on and that is finally kind of nearing completion with a photographer whose name is Laura Larson. And... Um, how we kind of came together is a longer, windier story. Um, but the, sh the upshot is that we, we both were kind of mutually fascinated in um, the archival photographs of women who had been diagnosed, women and girls who had been diagnosed with hysteria in 19th century France by Jean-Marie Charcot. Um, and uh, so that's where it began. And I, I wanted, because this is a collaboration, I wanted to show just a few slides. And in the book, there are archival photographs, there are photographs of archival photographs that Laura took, and then there are contemporary staged photographs that Laura made. So I'm not gonna spend too much time on this, I just wanna kind of give you a sense of, of what appears alongside the, the fiction. Um, so, I, you know, a lot of people are familiar with some of the photographs of the hysterics and, um, or I keep wanting to correct myself, girls and women who were diagnosed with hysteria. Um, and let's see if I can, well, this might be. <laughs> so, so this is Augustine and she came into the Salpetria when she was 13 or 14 and, and she is in, in one of the poses that um, were, were parts of the stages of hysteria that, that, that the, the girls and women who were kind of plucked from the, the larger population by Charcot, um, you know, they were, they were put in the amphitheater and, and kind of performed the stages of hysteria uh, for at first a medical audience, but then the audience kind of grew and it became kind of more circus-like. Um, it was something called the, the, uh, the Tuesday lessons that, that Charcot put on in, in, Paris. And then these are archival photographs of the Salpetriere itself, just to give you a sense. And then, I mean, one of the things that, that Laura and I discovered was this whole cache of photographs that were of women who were not the, the more renowned um, cases and, and who remained anonymous. And so this is a photograph of a woman. Actually, weirdly, I mean, it's one of the few photographs taken kind of outside in the courtyard. Um, and then this is an example of one of the photographs of the photograph. So this is Laura's rendering of a photograph in her dark room. Um, and then one of the things about that cache that I was describing of, of photographs, that's actually, it's at um, the Countway Medical Library at Harvard, is that they're glass negatives. So, so they look like this. And um, Laura took a number of pictures of them. Um, and then now begins the, the contemporary 
photographs by Laura. Um, so there's this, there's this. There, there were, among the many kind of forensic photographs uh, taken um, at the Salpetriere, there were a lot of sort of body parts. And in the story I'm going to read, there's mention of a photograph of a hand. But this is, these are Laura's tintypes of contemporary hands. And then this is another of, of Laura's photographs. So maybe I'll just leave them leave this up here. Um, I'll leave the hand up there. And um, so again, this is a slightly abridged version of one of the stories. And this one was inspired by one of the more renowned patients, Blanche Whitman, um, who was at first a patient and then she went to work in the radiology lab at the Salpetriere where she proceeded to um, lose her arm. Um, because, you know, sort of bit by bit because of radiation poisoning. Um, but this is partly plundered from the archive and partly my invention. Father Ether C. When the hunger comes, bread, onions, artichokes, herring, I douse it all with vinegar and stuff my face until I cannot breathe. I was born to go nowhere, the doctor said. Still, every day, there is a choice, and I make it. I go somewhere. What next? Wait, let me begin again. When I lost my hand, all I wanted was the ether. With amyl nitrate, a burst of kaleidoscopic colors too quickly gone. With chloroform, dreams both pleasant and painful, but mostly painful. With ether, agreeable and voluptuous dreams, a brightening, the infinite moving through me. I feel nothing, which isn't nowhere at all. In the days when I was queen, I'd sip from stolen bottles, the doctors often careless, leaving the bottle after they'd applied the cloth. Twelve years after the great doctor's death, the death of the diagnosis, the death of my queendom, and so on, and whatnot, no one cares to put me under. Now I work in the radiology lab. I work in it, and it has worked in me. Still, for everything sharpened, everything crisped, I look everywhere for the little bottles. When I find them in that expanding light, something floats up from my past, that great well of surprise. The apple stolen from a basket of fruit and candy a visitor brought to a patient, eaten in a back corner at the Hôpital Temporaire, where I worked years or decades ago as a ward girl. Only slightly bruised, that apple is still the sweetest I've ever tasted. Today, the new doctor wandering the radiology lab startled me with a question, and my father floated up out of the well. There he was, promising, as he forever was, to take us to the sea, by which he meant the Seine, that dirty river. It doesn't count, my brothers and I would say. What exactly were we counting? We'd never seen anything else. They say those attacks were simulated, the new doctor whispered to the intern I recently spurned, as if it were all a secret. The new doctor has a droopy, yearning mustache. A young man, but terrible posture, all of him a little wilted. He nodded his head in my direction, curious as the rest. Tucked inside his sentence, questions. Did you and the great doctor, or didn't you? Why did you tear the linens? Why did you break the plates? And questions he didn't have the imagination to ask. Do you dream about your missing arm? What is the difference between abandoned and unfortunate? Why did your father throw you out the window? 
bread, onion, artichoke, herring, vinegar, 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 vinegar. Let me begin again. Was it soon after he lost his job as a carpenter that my father piled my brothers and me on a train to the sea? He'd found piecemeal work with a milliner who wanted him to go to Dunkirk to visit a business on his behalf in Saint-Omer, where he hoped to sell some of his hats on consignment. Maybe my father knew an engineer who snuck us into a compartment. That day felt, it feels, like the beginning of everything, not the end. We lived next to one of the largest metalworking factories in Paris, outside of which were piles of thick iron sheets, waiting always to be moved. In the winter, my brothers and I watched as men chipped ice from them. Next door to the factory was the ironworks, with a puddling furnace where my brothers would eventually work, loading pig iron in a wheelbarrow, heaving it into the furnace, removing the slag. One day, not long after he took us to the sea, my father wandered in. Someone pulled the chain to the weight that opened the scorching furnace door, and he tried to crawl inside. The men pulled him out so only his pants caught fire which disappointed him greatly. The delirium lasted weeks. It landed him in bed number 40 of the St. Charles Ward, where a nun gave my mother a vial containing six drops of some mysterious thing. After that, he was carted off to an asylum, never to be heard from again. They say you were only making fools of them, the droopy, yearning doctor said again, as if my lost hand meant I was deaf too. He sidled up gently, not understanding it was never gentleness that brought me around in the amphitheater. Bright lights, strips of magnesium, whistles. There was an enormous gong. Bang that, I'm yours. The doctors, he added curiously, as if my silence meant confusion. He wanted the truth, as if it were a bottle of camphor or a bone. I kept my eyes on my work. I said nothing, and he said nothing more, perched on the edge of his imagination, where I was on my knees. Who among us hasn't been? His eyes threw heat, not altogether unpleasant. One of those hysterics who has had her moment of fame, said the spurned intern, who is never not watching. After I wouldn't let him maneuver me into the closet a second time, he would have liked to perform the amputation himself. Women have their fragility, but men are so easily wounded. He had rough, unspecific hands. I only had the burns then. That was when I first began working in the radiology lab. I hadn't yet lost a single finger. This is not the amphitheater, I said, gesturing with my stump. It usually scared him off. There was a time I would have said, oh, leave me alone. Every night I am put under. I no longer know what I'm doing or what I've become. But that was a long time ago, when I would lie down in the courtyard for hours and refuse to get up. She's better since she lost the hand, the intern says, not as though he wants me to hear, but as though I'm not here at all. That's when the droopy, yearning doctor startled me. What comforts you, he asked. His curiosity was a door opening. The intern took him by the arm, steered him elsewhere in the lab. Don't get mixed up in that, he said. Still, the new doctor's question lingered. It lingers. I misinterpreted his mustache. Yearning? Maybe, but not drooping, not wilted. Let me begin again. From Paris to Dunkirk, did my father tell us stories as the train heaved in and out of stations on its way to the sea? After he climbed into the furnace, my brothers said everything he told us wasn't true. But what is life if not the lies we tell about it? Truth is not, a camp- is not camphor or a bone. Even the moon is a liar. It appears to be waxing when it is waning, waning when it is waxing. I was once a soft wax figure onto which the doctors could imprint the most fantastic emotions. 
They said we had an essentially perverse nature, that our impulse was to steal, falsely accuse, set things on fire, that we had a need to lie for no reason and to no end. They said this as if it were some great discovery, as if it had nothing to do with them. They had never lied out of desperation or just because they could. They hypnotized us and told us ammonia was rose water, charcoal was chocolate, a top hat was a baby to be cradled. Who among us hasn't tried to wring a little fun out of the struggle? Let me begin again. The hospital has always been a museum full of dead things. Anatomical drawings, a cabinet of curiosity full of skulls, spinal columns, entire skeletons. When the great doctor died, he became one of the dead things. I was an imaginative child, but never could I have imagined my way here. My searching child's heart, like my father's when he was a boy, raced ahead, curious about its future. One day, not able to read a sign on the door, he walked into a random home to beg a scrap of bread. The home turned out to be the office of the mayor, who walked him directly to the jail for violating the local ordinance against, against begging. There wasn't one against not being able to read. What next? What next? Ticking inside me a hunger clock. Bread, onions, artichokes, herring, vinegar, 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 vinegar. Let me begin again. My father, I loved him more than anyone else in the world. My father told us as if we were not his children, but strangers he met on that train. His father was a miller. His mother died when he was a baby. That he was ever a baby, that seems strange enough. That he grew from a baby into a boy, stranger still. We listened, his life rushing by us like the world outside the train windows. One day he was that boy and he was leaving school. He saw people running toward the mill where his father worked. There must be something extraordinary, my father thought, thrilled by that wide open feeling of anything before you understand that anything contains everything from delight to wreckage. The windmill was not turning. I will find my father, he thought. My father will explain. Up ahead, his uncle fell to the ground. He'd fainted rather than see more. A lightning bolt had struck one of the veins, breaking it apart, crushing my grandfather underneath. People led my father away, and he never saw his father again. You were abandoned, his aunt said. You must come live with us now. What are you saying, his uncle shouted. He isn't abandoned, he insisted, only unfortunate. This distinction, my father said to me and my brothers, it is everything. I am not abandoned, only unfortunate. You were not abandoned, only unfortunate, he said when he gathered me up after he threw me out the window. Whenever he said it, he was telling our future, mine and my brothers. He was telling us how to live after he was gone, which would be sooner than any of us thought. Let me begin again. What next? My curious heart races ahead. The first thing I did when I arrived was leave. 18 years old, I snuck out of the hospital and was gone for hours, but I never left the Grand Boulevard. Where would I have gone? Those first nights in the hospital, I was not yet Blanche, only Marie. I cried out in my sleep, Blanche, Blanche, come quick. This is what they told me. This was before the ether. Still, I have no memory of those nights. Was Blanche a dead sister, they wondered? I thought, well, somewhere there's a dead sister named Blanche, but she's not mine. I have two brothers who might be dead, but I did not tell them that. I love the name Blanche. It's always made me think bosoms. Even now, I have spectacular bosoms. I became Blanche, and then I became the queen. Throughout Europe, the doctor became great, but I was the queen, and even he, in all his greatness, understood the queen was greater. 
From here to there, the great doctor traced my story, a story he made out of things I remembered or dreamed or things I dreamed I remembered. He traced the line from there to here, the seizures and convulsions that left me partially deaf and mute as a child, apprenticed to a Fourier at the age of 12. In that house, I dropped everything I tried to hold. The Fourier's wife, believing I was doing it on purpose, made me pay for the things I broke. By the end, I was in their debt. Two years later, the Fourier attacked me. I ran all the way home to my mother, who allowed me to work with her. She was a laundress by the Seine. The mariners and dockers mistook us for prostitutes, despite the heavy loads of laundry we carried. Every day, they followed us home until the day my mother couldn't get out of bed. Of the first weeks after she died, the only thing I remember are dark rooms. Soon after, my two brothers placed in foster homes, and I went back to the furrier. I'd lost my virginity by then to a boy I liked who worked for a jeweler. He had deliberate hands, specific fingers. Eight months after I started working again for the furrier, I woke up with the shakes and broke every plate in the house. When I ran away, a nun from the convent on the Rue du Cherche Midi took me in. I think I would have made a good nun, though I never would have become bosomy Blanche. I'd still be dusty old Marie. Two months later, I had a fit in the laundry room and tore all the linens. It was then I came to the Salpetriere, hired first as a ward girl, a few days later admitted to the non-insane epileptic ward. The doctors assumed my father was one of the men down by the Seine, who followed my mother home. The curiosity of those men, like that of the intern, often swor swerved into cruelty. I kept some things to myself. I keep some things from myself. Let me begin again. There are endless photographs of us in this museum of dead things. There it is again, my lost hand in one of those photographs, not lost at all. There were days I needed the bright light, the incandescent strip, the whistle, the gong. Then there were days it came unbidden. I came unbidden. In the photograph, my left arm is raised. There it is again, my long gone hand, not gone at all, but double blurred like Paris rain at a painted window. The great doctor said I was a kind of statue, and it is true, I could be. A half bottle of ether, I could hold a position for hours. <clears throat> they raised my arms above my head like a ballerina, but the way my head is turned, gazing up at my hand, that was me. A fine vine like the thin a fine vein like the thin stripped stripped branch of a tree in winter reaches up the inside of my wrist. How to describe the feeling of being only body, that ether feeling of nothingness that wasn't nothing. I always had beautiful hands, my fingers long and lovely. The cup of my own palm holds my gaze, it holds me there in its world. The amphitheater, the hospital, the city, the country, there is infinite, glorious space. My mother, my father, my brothers are there still. There it is, the world, not lost at all. Though maybe it's true what they said about me, what they say still, I am in pieces. When the train arrived at the port on the North Sea in Dunkirk, did we go to the shipyards? Did my brothers and my father strike up a conversation with some of the men working the docks? Did they talk the way certain men talk about things they are encountering for the first time, conjuring solid facts? The size and shape and seaworthiness of those ships, the words they found to tether the things they saw would have fascinated me. I stuck around for a while thinking I might learn something, but then the jetty called to me. I walked out into, onto it, there way out on the horizon, a boat. 
For hours, the boat moved across that water so slowly it seemed not to move at all. The sea surrounding it, a glittering vision of the infinite. When I broke every plate in the house of the furrier, the sound glittered like the sea. Plates and plates and plates, the glittering crashed through me, same as the light on the sounding sea as I stood on the jetty. The tides had something to do with that lying moon. My mother, my father or my brothers or one of the men by the docks said, and I felt myself a part of the moon and the waves. This body wasn't a problem. What comforts you, the new doctor asked. What did he want to know? Sometimes the doctors would put me to sleep and subject me to certain influences. I forgot who I was, when I was, and why. I lost the idea of my late existence. Even still, I was not abandoned, only unfortunate. That boat was in no hurry to get anywhere at all. Where was it going? It moves still across the infinite, and everyone's still and always here. I appear to be waxing when I am waning, waning when I am waxing. My father never took us to the sea, only the Seine, that dirty river. Who cares? Why is unfortunate better than abandoned, I want to ask my father who left this earth long ago. Sometimes I stuff my mouth with vinegar-douse bread, onions, artichoke, herring, and try to forget the question. Sometimes I find the bottles, turn my insides to silk, and the question no longer matters. What question? It's funny, the details that make up a life. No one can see the shape of a life until it's over, so I'll never know if it was nowhere I was born to go. There's only beginning and beginning, and so let me begin again. There's the story of your life, and then there are the parts no one can ever know, not even you. Thank you.